Welcome to part two of our fabulous podcast, right? Yay. Sam and I haven't been able to catch up with each other the last few weeks, so we've been having to kind of do this distantly. So we are talking about the World Fair, and like I said, there there is quite a great Potawatomi presence and native presence overall, and the greatest tequila at the time, agave, was discovered too, and Sam's going to talk about that. Because me and him are talking about the month that was put together, and we think this is where Cinco de Mayo came from. And that's where we're going with. Cinco de Mayo came from the World Fair, too. So we're going to go. Um, so Simon Pokagan, which was Leopold Pokagan's son, was invited to the World Fair to, because it was 60 years uh, after the Treaty of Chicago, and they wanted to do a reenactment of it. So they asked him to come on stage. They did the reenactment of it. They even had a, um, they had parades going down, even recreating the Dearborn Massacres, right? I don't know. It's probably from the white man's view too, right? History, his story. So they were doing all that, and Pokagan gets up on stage even. They let him get a little spill, and he talks about how we need to all get along. And it's it's really great. Pokagan is very, he's playing into their hands. He's telling them exactly everything they want to hear. And on the flip side of that, there's something else going on in the audience. People are walking around, passing around these birch tree booklets. And the birch tree booklets were made by Pokagan. And one of the reasons he did is because everything came from birch tree. From a... Warriors to matrimonial, everything that Nate, that we did, canoes, everything had was involved from the, from the birch tree, and just like how the birch tree is disappearing, so are natives, and that was that was his big thing. That's why he wanted to use it, and he's up there telling everything he can to please the audience, but at the same time, these booklets are being passed around that have the red man's rebuke. And if you haven't had a chance to read it, you can definitely go back to the previous podcast, part one, and listen to Sam read it to you. It is, it's fascinating. This is like a, it's a sit-in protest, really, if you think about it. And that is really good for that time. I mean, he was years ahead of thinking on to be a nonviolent protest. This is like one of the very first examples I've ever heard of. And... No one knew what to think about it. You know, they're passing around and they're reading it and listening to him talk. And he pulled the wool over their eyes. So I applaud you, Pokagan. That was brilliant. Sam's going to read some tequila in a little bit. Gives all the fascinating experience about that. Another thing I want to talk about was the uh, plaisance. We talked about the plaisance earlier. And the plaisance... I got said it was the carnival. Buffalo Bill was there, and there's very little Potawatomi presence in that because, according to the Chicagoans, we did not look savage enough. They even made a statue and kept it downtown, right? It was, a Pot- it was supposed to be a statue of Potawatomi. It was actually a statue of a guy called Short Bull, who was, uh, I want to say it was Lakota. But anyways, 
he was supposed to be the Potawatomi, and they kept it downtown Chicago for many years. So all these people are, th so I did not know how you could not be native enough, but we hear that these days, right? Like, oh, you can't be native, you got blonde hair. Oh, you can't be native, you got light skin. That's the irony, still putting up with it. But it's something that we, we need to think about. It went on back then, it's going on now. It's still going on. It's just the way people view natives. So, and even within ourselves, we cannot let appearances, I mean, be a good judgment. Being native has nothing to do about gender, appearance, nothing. It's, do you live the, to me, it's more about living the lifestyle. If you can't live the lifestyle, you know even what the lifestyle is be and make it your own too. I mean, it's your kids that you're passing stuff down on to. And a lot of us probably didn't have, our parents probably weren't cult culturally uh, appropriated, right? I mean, they had no clue what they were doing. My family, I know, just, just we just quit being native after going to get put in a uh, adoption home, orphanages, wheat farms so many times before they beat the native out of you, right? So by the time it comes down a few generations later, like, oh yeah, I think I know what it means to be Indian. So we are back in that time where it's, we get a chance to learn and share it. So if you're not doing your anything at all, even a word a day, a word a week, something, I'll always be grateful because then you're just keeping that little fire going because you don't know if one day your kids will be like, oh, can we speak Indian? Or your grandkids, can we speak Indian? Maybe a word will teach them something. Show them that's still there. Technology is great, but nothing works better than actually being in the home. I'm rambling for six minutes and 17 seconds. Is that not amazing? I know you can listen to me talk all day. So I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to Sam now. Sam's going to tell us about the agave plant of the World Fair. And I found this really interesting just because I was like, Sam, cactus, tequila, 1893. You know, it kind of makes me think, wow. Imagine getting those margaritas and getting on that Ferris wheel. Ooh, maybe that's why so many people afford the Ferris wheel. They're drunk. Send down there getting all drunk and saying, oh, it's just $15 to ride that Ferris wheel. That's nothing, man. We're not going to eat this week, but I got my agave and I got my Ferris wheel. So Sam, go ahead and uh, I'll, I'll turn these read. Sam's going to read to us. He's, like I said, it just really fascinated him. So Sam, it's all yours. This reading comes from the website World's Fair Chicago 1893.com and it's under the history section. It's uh, the story is titled Progress of the Century, the celebrated agave plant of the 1893 World's Fair. And the story reads 
Uncle John rose with the morning sun on April 23, 1893 and made a beeline for the Culture building on the fairgrounds of the World's Columbian Exposition in Jackson Park, Chicago. The opening of the fair, when President Cleveland would push the button to unfurl the flags along the White City rooftops and release the water to the glorious fountains, was still nine days away. Today, however, the chief of the horticulture department was expecting a throng of visitors to his verdant exhibition hall, all anxious to see a different kind of unfurling. What, what had kept him awake with much worry of the night was the timing of it all. After waiting a lifetime, the plant under his care was ready for the biggest show in the world, though just a bit ahead of schedule. The century plant was blooming. At a world's fair filled with displays of the biggest, a golden colossus, a mammoth squash, a huge walk-in flower barrel, massive chocolate statues, and an immense rotating wheel, the biggest grower of the fairgrounds was an unassuming plant sitting under the main dome of Horticulture Hall. The so-called century plant, Agave Americana, is a gigantic cactus native to Mexico and Texas. Despite the moniker, this plant typically lives only a few decades. The Los Angeles Times noted that the common error perpetuated in its name, that it blooms only once in a century, is repeated with each account. It requires not more than 25 years to come to full maturity. A century plant is monocarpic, meaning that it blooms just once in its lifetime. The show is spectacular. All at once, it takes the notion to grow, and then it makes up for its past indolence, noted the, a Chicago newspaper uh, called World's Fair Doings. At the end of its life, the plant uses all its energy to shoot up into a tall stalk with yellow blossoms, and then it dies. The century plant on display at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago was ready to begin its spectacular flowering event even if the fair wasn't quite ready to open. Surprisingly, the century plant that would become a famous horticultural exhibit of the 1893 World's Fair came not from Mexico or Southeast United States, but from Richmond, Indian, or Indiana. The Columbian Exposition had appointed John Thorpe as superintendent of the Bureau of Floriculture on September 10, 1891. His greenhouses and flowers were part of the larger department of horticulture. Soon after his appointment, Uncle John, as he was widely known, began touring the United States in search of interesting specimens. While on one of his flowering, flower hunting tours in the fall of 1892, Mr. Thorpe discovered a fine example of agave americana that had for 40 years been an heirloom nurtured by the Reeves family of Richmond, Indiana. Caroline Middleton Reeves had no idea that her plant was preparing to blossom at long last. Having an eye for century plants, Mr. Thorpe saw evidence of a coming glory, recognizing from its appearance that a flower-bearing stalk would shoot upward within a few months. Could it hold off until May 1st? The century plant from Richmond joined the growing horticulture collection in Horticulture Hall in early December 1892. After loaning her impressive agave plant to the Chicago Fair, Mrs. Reeves later became an important local philanthropist and benefactor 
of the Morrison Reeves Library in Richmond. By January 1893, still four months before the official opening of the exposition, the Horticultural Building offered abundant displays for visitors to the fairgrounds. Among the approximately 26,000 plants, the Century Plant was the clear star of the show. The central pavilion of William Lee Baron Jenny's Horticultural Building was topped by a massive glass dome, 187 feet in diameter, and 113 feet high. In a circular space underneath the dome stood an artificial mound designed to represent a mountain but widely thought to have missed the mark. A crystal cave attraction with paid admission operated beneath the mound covered with plants which became known as the Palm Mountain. At ground level near this mound stood the century plant. A measuring stick next to it allowed all to see its remarkable progress upward. While some newspapers described the agave plant display as the sensation of the hour and the center of attraction at Jackson Park, others were not as impressed. The New York World reported in March that at present the public has selected a not very remarkable specimen of the so-called century plant, agave americana, as the center of interest. Where the show has begun, even the hometown Chicago inter-ocean was puzzled by the buzz riding. Another quote, while the century plant in the present public idol, it is difficult to understand why it is so. In comparison with it, a common telegraph pole is a thing of beauty. It is thoroughly commonplace in everything except its eccentricities, and yet it draws the crowd from its more deserving neighbors. That was in World's Fair Doings. A Vermont reporter described it as the most ungainly exhibit, but also acknowledged that the agave plant, uh, possessing Chicago spirit, genius for getting on, is a great favorite despite its ugliness. And that was from another Chicago letter. Right about Christmas Day of 1892, the plant surprised the garden attendants by shooting up a slender stem from its center. A century plant grows usually in the uniform rate of about an inch and a half a day, reported the Chicago Tribune on January 25th. Lampooning East Coast Republicans Matthew Quay and Elliot Fitch Shepard, the paper added that measurements of the specimen in the horticultural building at the fair quote, showed that this uncivilized Mexican plant, either unaware of the regulations prescribed by the American Congress or an impudent defiance thereof, had grown two whole inches Sunday. This will necessitate prompt and decisive action on the part of Senator Quay and Colonel Elliot F. Shepard. It is undecorous, it is improper, it is healthenish. Heathenish. Uh, end quote. <clears throat> Some reports claim this heathenish growth rate to be an astonishing three inches per day, though accurate measurements in January showed recorded a growth rate closer to two and one quarter inches per day, and the mighty plant reached a height of 56 inches that month. Tongue firmly in cheek, Superintendent Thorpe told the press that if it keeps up its present record, the plant will reach the top of the horticultural dome at 10 o'clock in the morning of July 3, 1894, 
provided it does not bloom and die before that time. His math was just a bit off. Growing 2.25 inches a day would require 603 days to reach the 113-foot-tall dome. In truth, Chief Thorpe uh, expected the plant to reach a height of 30 feet before unfolding its blossoms. Un observers of the mature plant reported heights ranging from 12 to 25 feet. When the agave plant would finally bloom was the point of continuous conjecture and consternation. In January, Thorpe was expecting a bloom in February. In February, he was eyeing March. On March 4th, the New York press reported the specimen would bloom in three to four weeks. As the plant climbed toward the glass ceiling, the fair's opening day on May 1st became tantalizingly closer. In early April, the century plant could wait no longer, and small blossoms made their appearance. The agave americana, quote, doesn't take much stock in sentiment, end quote, observed the Chicago Tribune when the plant ignored the wishes of floricultural assistants and began to blossom well ahead of opening day. When it got ready to open its eyes and look about it yesterday, it didn't consult either the gardeners or the wishes of the great American public. In an attempt to shut out the light and retard the blooming or preserve the flower, John Thorpe ordered tissue paper nightcaps placed over each blossom cluster on April 19th. He hoped to cheat the plant of the belief that it has made a mistake into blossoming so soon. The ignominiously hooded plant was also soon to be kept concealed from the gaze of visitors. On April 23rd, nothing could keep the spectators away, and Chief Thorpe climbed his stepladder to carefully remove the nightcaps. Vast crowds began to fill Horticultural Hall to the point of an uncomfortable mass by evening, all eager to see the blossoming giant. Towering some 15 feet above the base of the plant, the flowers were a beautiful chrome-yellow color and were expected to last for around six weeks. That offered plenty of time for, for many thousands of visitors to the fair to see the once-in-a-lifetime display of this exhausted century plant. An Indianapolis newspaper reported that the great triumph of the exposition is the unique spectacle of the century plant in full bloom. This plant has attracted thousands of visitors for weeks and will continue to do so until it's run its race. And that came from products of the soil. When young man from Decatur who worked at the fair wrote home to his parents about the amazing global diversity assembled in Chicago, he singled out the agave plant. Quote, I have seen nearly every race of people on the earth. It is quite a sight to see how they live and the houses they live in made of fishing poles and of grass. The way they work and the tools they use. The horticultural building is grand, flowers from all over the world, including a century plant that is about as large as a bucket at its base and is higher than the towers at home. That was in the Decatur Boy at the Fair. One historian recorded that the flowering agave americana, while not gaudy or especially attractive, is illustrious. There was some disappointment at the appearance of a bloom on the century plant, reported the Chicago Inter-Ocean, for they are by no means beautiful as compared with the hundreds of other flowers which require much less time to develop. That quote was from the rare flower exhibited. 
Other agave Americana plants joined the celebrity from Indiana on Palm Mountain under the horticultural glass dome. Quote, never before have in the history of flower shows has such a collection been gathered together, advised one guidebook, and the century plant now in bloom under the beautiful century dome may burst forth into flowers again before such another may be viewed. End quote. Week at the fair. The beautiful sight of their yellow petals reaching skyward would soon be complete, competing with chocolate statues, a prune knight, a mammoth cheese wheel, a liberty bell of oranges, and countless other wonders from the plant kingdom on display at the 1893 World's Fair. In its report on the century plant, the New York World wrote that agave americana is simply a gigantic cactus bearing in its heart a rich syrupy secretion which, when tapped, the Mexican people call pulque, and when distilled, becomes an intoxicant more fiery than Jersey Lightning, known as mezcal, where the show has begun. That's where that quote came from. Rather than being produced from agave sap, mezcal is made from the cooked heart of certain agave plants with tequila being the most popular variety. That tequila was first introduced to Americans at the Colombian Exhibition as one of those endlessly repeated assertions that seemingly has gone unchecked. <clears throat> Only a few references to pulque show up in contemporary reports from the 1893 World's Fair. Describing the distilled spirits exhibited at the Colombian Exposition, Guido Marx recorded that Mexico earned seven awards for mezcal brandy and also exhibited pulque, aguardiente, and many other native beverages extracted from plants or made from fruits. <clears throat> Describing the products from Mexico displayed in the agricultural building, historian Hubert Bancroft noted that samples of native drinks are plentiful including pulque and other liquors extracted from native plants. Another historian contradictorily recorded that samples of the famous national beverage pulque, however, cannot be seen as this liquor will not keep for any length of time. Whether or not tequila actually showed up at the 1893 World's Fair, the century plant it is derived from made a spectacular show that summer end. And again, that reading was from World's Fair Chicago 1893.com under the history section. And the story is Progress of the Century, the celebrated agave plant of the 1893 World's Fair. You know what, just in case you missed it, I'm going to go ahead and add, re-add Sam reading the Redman's Rebuke again. Just in case you missed on the podcast, if you listened to it on the previous episode, you can listen to it again or just hang up and hit stop. So, enjoy. This is The Red Man's Rebuke, written in 1893 by Simon Pokagan, Potawatomi chief, author, activist, and member of the Pokagan Band of Potawatomi Indians. Mr. Pokagan was a featured speaker before a crowd of 75,000 gathered to celebrate Chicago Day at the World's Columbian Exposition. 
Uh, the speech was also printed at his own expense as a book made out of birch bark paper and distributed to fairgoers. It was later retitled The Red Man's Greeting. So this starts by the author Simon Pokagan. My object in publishing The Red Man's Rebuke on the Bark of the White Birch Tree is out of loyalty to my own people and gratitude to the Great Spirit who in his wisdom provided for, uh, for our use untold generations. This most remarkable tree with manifold bark used by us instead of paper being of greater value to us as it could not be injured by sun or water. Out of the bark of this wonderful tree were made hats, caps, and dishes for domestic use. While our maidens tied it with the knot that sealed their marriage vow, wigwams were made of it as well as large canoes that outrode the violent storms on lake and sea. It was also used for light and fuel at our war councils and spirit dances. Originally, the shore of our northern lakes and streams were fringed with it and evergreen, and the white charmingly contrasted with the green mirrored from the water was indeed beautiful. But like the red man, this tree is vanishing from our forests. <clears throat> Alas for us, our day is o'er, our fires are out from shore to shore. No more for us the wild deer bounds, the plow is on our hunting grounds. The pale man's axe rings through our woods, the pale man's sail skims o'er floods. Our pleasant springs are dry, our children look with power oppressed beyond the mountains of the west. Our children go to die. Shall not one line lament our forest race, for you stuck out from wild creation's face. Freedom, the self-same freedom you adore, bade us defend our violent shore. That was a poem I believe by James Earl Fraser. <clears throat> the old man who saw the visions claimed it meant that the Indian race would surely pass away before the pale-faced strangers. He died a martyr to his belief. Centuries have passed since that time, and we now behold in the vision, as in a mirror, the present network of railroads and the monstrous engines with their fire, smoke, and hissing steam, with cars attached as they go sweeping through the land. The cyclone of civilization rolled westward. The forests of untold centuries were swept away. Streams dried up. Lakes fell back from their ancient bounds and all our fathers once loved to gaze upon was destroyed, defaced, or marred, except the sun, moon, and starry skies above, which the great spirit in his wisdom hung beyond their reach. Still on the storm cloud rolled, while before its lightning and thunder the beasts of the earth and the fowl of the air withered like grass before the flame, were shot for love of power to kill along, and left a spoil upon the plains. Their Bleaching bones now scattered far and near, in shame declare the wanton cruelty of the pale-faced men. The storm unsatisfied on land swept our lakes and streams, while before its clouds of hooks, nets, and glistening spears, 
The fish vanished from our waters like the morning dew before the rising sun. Thus our inheritance was cut off, and we were driven and scattered as sheep before the wolves. Nor was this all. They brought among us fatal diseases our fathers knew not of. Our medicine men tried in vain to check the deadly plague, but they themselves died, and our people fell as fall the leaves before the autumn's blast. To be just, we must acknowledge there were some good men with these strangers who gave their lives for ours and in great kindness taught us the revealed will of the Great Spirit through His Son Jesus, the mediator between God and man. But while we were being taught to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and strength, our neighbors as ourselves and our children were taught to lisp, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Bad men of the same race who we thought the same belief shocked our faith in the revealed will of their Father as they came among us with bitter oaths upon their lips, something we had never heard before, and cups of fire water in their hands, something we had never seen before. They pressed the sparkling glass to our lips and said, Drink, and you will be happy. We drank thereof, we and our children, but alas, like the serpent that charms to kill, the drink habit coiled about the heartstrings of its victims, shocking unto death, friendship, love, honor, manhood, all that makes men good and noble, crushing out all ambition, and leaving naught but a culprit vagabond in the place of a man. Now, as we have been taught to believe that our first parents ate of the forbidden fruit and fell, so we as fully believe this fire water is the hard cider of the white man's devil, made from the fruit of that tree that brought death into the world and all our woes. The arrow, the scalping knife, and the tomahawk used on the warpath were merciful compared with it. They were used in our defense, but the accursed drink came like the serpent in the form of a dove. Many of our people partook of it without mistrust, as children pluck the flowers and clutch a scorpion in their grasp. Only when they feel the sting, they let the flowers fall. But nature's children had no such power, for when the viper's fangs they felt, they only hugged the reptile the more closely to their breasts while friends before them stood pleading with prayers and tears that they would let the deadly serpent drop, but all in vain, although they promised so to do, yet with laughing grin and steps uncertain like the fool, they still more frequently guzzled down this hellish drug. Finally, conscience ceased to give alarm, and led by a deep despair to life's last brink, and goaded by demons on every side, they cursed themselves, they cursed their friends, they cursed their beggar babes and wives, they cursed their God and died. The old man who saw the visions claimed it meant that the Indian race would surely pass away before the pale-faced strangers. He died a martyr to his belief. Centuries have passed since that time, and we now behold in the vision, as in a mirror, the present network of railroads and the monstrous engines with their fire, smoke, and hissing steam, with cars attached as they go sweeping through the land. 
The cyclone of civilization rolled westward. The forests of untold centuries were swept away. Streams dried up. Lakes fell back from their ancient bounds. And all our fathers once loved to gaze upon was destroyed, defaced, or marred, except the sun, moon, and starry skies above, which the great spirit in his wisdom hung beyond their reach. Still on the storm cloud rolled, while before its lightning and thunder the beasts of the earth and the fowl of the air withered like grass before the flame, were shot for love of power to kill along, and left a spoil upon the plains. Their bleaching bones now scattered far and near, in shame declare the wanton cruelty of the pale-faced men. The storm unsatisfied on land swept our lakes and streams, while before its clouds of hooks, nets, and glistening spears, the fish vanished from our waters like the morning dew before the rising sun. Thus our inheritance was cut off, and we were driven and scattered as sheep before the wolves. Nor was this all, they brought among us fatal diseases our fathers knew not of. Our medicine men tried in vain to check the deadly plague. But they themselves died, and our people fell as fall the leaves before the autumn's blast. To be just, we must acknowledge there were some good men with these strangers, who gave their lives for ours, and in great kindness taught us the revealed will of the Great Spirit through His Son Jesus, the mediator between God and man. But while we were being taught to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and strength, our neighbors as ourselves and our children were taught to lisp, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Bad men of the same race who we thought the same belief shocked our faith in the revealed will of their Father as they came among us with bitter oaths upon their lips, something we had never heard before and cups of fire water in their hands, something we had never seen before. They pressed the sparkling glass to our lips and said, Drink, and you will be happy. We drank thereof, we and our children, but alas, like the serpent that charms to kill, the drink habit coiled about the heartstrings of its victims, shocking unto death, friendship, love, honor, manhood, all that makes men good and noble, crushing out all ambition, and leaving naught but a culprit vagabond in the place of a man. Now, as we have been taught to believe that our first parents ate of the forbidden fruit and fell, so we as fully believe this fire water is the hard cider of the white man's devil, made from the fruit of that tree that brought death into the world and all our woes. The arrow, the scalping knife, and the tomahawk used on the warpath were merciful compared with it. They were used in our defense, but the accursed drink came like the serpent in the form of a dove. Many of our people partook of it without mistrust, as children pluck the flowers and clutch a scorpion in their grasp. Only when they feel the sting, they let the flowers fall. But nature's children had no such power. For when the viper's fangs they felt, they only hugged the reptile the more closely to their breasts, while friends before them stood pleading with prayers and tears that they would let the deadly serpent drop. But all in vain, although they promised so to do, yet with laughing grin and steps uncertain like the fool, they still more frequently guzzled down this hellish drug. Finally, 
conscience ceased to give alarm, and led by a deep despair to life's last brink, and goaded by demons on every side, they cursed themselves, they cursed their friends, they cursed their beggar babes and wives, they cursed their God and died. Read the following left on record by Peter Martyr, who visited our forefathers in the day of Columbia. It is certain that the land among these people is as common as the sun and water, and that thine and mine, the seed of all misery, have no place with them. They are content with so little, that in so large a country they have rather a superfluity than a scarceness so that they seem to live in the golden world without toil, living in open gardens, not entrenched with dikes, not divided with hedges, nor divided with walls. They deal truly one with another, without laws, without books, without judges. They take him for an evil and mischievous man who taketh pleasure in doing hurt to another, and albeit they delight in not in superfluities, Yet they make provision for the increase of such roots whereof they make bread, content with such simple diet whereof health is preserved and disease is avoided. Your own histories show that Columbus, on his first visit to our shores in a message to the king and queen of Spain, paid our forefathers this beautiful tribute. They are loving, uncovetous people, so docile in all things that I swear to your majesties there is not in the world a better race or more delightful country. They love their neighbors as themselves, and their talk is ever sweet and gentle. Accompanied with smile, and though they be naked, yet their manners are decorous and praiseworthy. But a few years passed away, and your historians left to be perused with shame the following facts. On the islands of the Atlantic coast and in the populous empires of Mexico and Peru, the Spaniards, through pretense of friendship and religion, gained audience with chiefs and kings, their families and attendants. They were received with great kindness and courtesy. But in return, they most treacherously seized and bound in chains the unsuspecting natives, and as a ransom for their release demanded large sums of gold, which were soon given by their subjects. But instead of granting them freedom as promised, they were put to death in a most shocking manner. Their subjects were then hunted down like wild beasts with bloodhounds, robbed and enslaved, while under pretext to convert them to Christianity, the rack, the scourge, and the faggot were used. Some were burned alive in their thickets and fastnesses for refusing to work the mines as slaves. Tradition says these acts of base ingratitude were communicated from tribe to tribe throughout the continent, and that a universal wail as one voice went up from all the tribes of the unbroken wilderness. We must beat back these strangers from our shores before they seize our lands and homes, or slavery or death are ours. 
Reader, pause here, close your eyes, shut out from your heart all prejudice against our race, and honestly consider the above records penned by the pale-faced historians centuries ago, and tell us in the name of eternal truth, and by all that is sacred and dear to mankind, was there ever a people without the slightest reason of offense, more treacherously imprisoned and scourged than we have been? And tell us, have crime, despotism, violence, and slavery ever been dealt out in a more wicked manner to crush out life and liberty? And was ever a people more mortally offended than our forefathers were? Read the following left on record by Peter Martyr, who visited our forefathers in the day of Columbia. It is certain that the land among these people is as common as the sun and water, and that thine and mine, the seed of all misery, have no place with them. They are content with so little, that in so large a country they have rather a superfluity than a scarceness so that they seem to live in the golden world without toil, living in open gardens, not entrenched with dikes, not divided with hedges, nor divided with walls. They deal truly one with another, without laws, without books, without judges. They take him for an evil and mischievous man who taketh pleasure in doing hurt to another. And albeit they delight in not in superfluities, Yet they make provision for the increase of such roots whereof they make bread, content with such simple diet whereof health is preserved and disease is avoided. Your own histories show that Columbus, on his first visit to our shores in a message to the king and queen of Spain, paid our forefathers this beautiful tribute. They are loving, uncovetous people, so docile in all things that I swear to your majesties there is not in the world a better race or more delightful country. They love their neighbors as themselves, and their talk is ever sweet and gentle. Accompanied with smile, and though they be naked, yet their manners are decorous and praiseworthy. But a few years passed away, and your historians left to be perused with shame the following facts. On the islands of the Atlantic coast and in the populous empires of Mexico and Peru, the Spaniards, through pretense of friendship and religion, gained audience with chiefs and kings, their families and attendants. They were received with great kindness and courtesy. But in return, they most treacherously seized and bound in chains the unsuspecting natives, and as a ransom for their release demanded large sums of gold, which were soon given by their subjects. But instead of granting them freedom as promised, they were put to death in a most shocking manner. Their subjects were then hunted down like wild beasts with bloodhounds, robbed and enslaved, while under pretext to convert them to Christianity, the rack, the scourge, and the faggot were used. Some were burned alive in their thickets and fastnesses for refusing to work the mines as slaves. Tradition says these acts of base ingratitude 
were communicated from tribe to tribe throughout the continent, and that a universal wail as one voice went up from all the tribes of the unbroken wilderness. We must beat back these strangers from our shores before they seize our lands and homes, or slavery or death are ours. Reader, pause here, close your eyes, shut out from your heart all prejudice against our race, and honestly consider the above records penned by the pale-faced historians centuries ago, and tell us in the name of eternal truth, and by all that is sacred and dear to mankind, was there ever a people without the slightest reason of offense, more treacherously imprisoned and scourged than we have been? And tell us, have crime, despotism, violence, and slavery ever been dealt out in a more wicked manner to crush out life and liberty? And was ever a people more mortally offended than our forefathers were? But a few more generations and the last child of the forest will have passed into the world beyond, into that kingdom where Che Bonyubus, the great spirit, dwelleth, who loveth justice and mercy and hateth evil, who has declared the fittest in his kingdom shall be those alone that hear and aid his children when they cry, and that love him and keep his commandments. In that kingdom, many of our people in faith believe we will summon the pale-faced spirits to take position on his left, and the red spirits upon his right, and that he will say, Sons and daughters of the forest, your prayers for deliverance from the iron heels of oppression through centuries past are recorded in this book now open before me made from the bark of the white birch, a tree under which are for generations past you have mourned and wept. On its pages silently has been recorded your sad history. It has touched my heart with pity, and I will have compassion. Then turning to his left, he will say, Sons and daughters of the East, all hear and give heed to my words. While on earth I did great and marvelous things for you, I, ga I gave... My only Son, who declared unto you my will, and as you had freely received, to so freely give. A few of you have kept the faith, and through opposition and great tribulation have labored hard and honestly for the redemption of mankind regardless of race or color. To all such I know I now give divine power to fly on lightning throughout my universe. Now therefore listen. And when the great drum beats, let's all try their powers to fly. Only those can rise who acted well their part on earth to redeem and save the fallen. The drum will be sounded, and the innumerable multitude will appear some vast sea of wounded birds struggling to rise. We shall behold it, and shall hear their fluttering as the rumbling of an earthquake and to our surprise shall see but a scattering few in triumph rise, and shall hear their songs re-echo through the vault of heaven as they sing, Glory to the Highest, who hath redeemed and saved us. Then the Great Spirit will speak with a voice of thunder to the remaining shame-faced multitude. Hear ye, it is through great mercy that you have been permitted to enter these happy hunting grounds. 
Therefore I charge you in presence of these red men that you are guilty of having tyrannized over them in many and strange ways. I find you guilty of having made wanton wholesale butchery of their game and fish. I find you guilty of having used tobacco, a poisonous weed made only to kill parasites and plants and lice on men and beasts. You found it with the red men. You used it only in smoking the pipe of peace to confirm their contracts in place of a seal, but you multiplied its use, not only in smoking, but in chewing and snuffing, thus forming unhealthy, filthy habits, and by cigarettes, the abomination of abominations, learned little children to hunger and thirst after the father and mother of palsy and cancers. I find you guilty of tagging after the pay agents sent out by the great chief of the United States among the Indians to pay off their birthright claims to homes and liberty and native lands, and then sneaking about their agencies by deceit and trickery, cheating and robbing them of their money and goods, thus leaving them poor and naked. I also find you guilty of following the trail of Christian missionaries into the wilderness among the natives, and when they had set up my altars, and the great work of redemption had just begun, and some in faith believed, you then and there most wickedly set up the idol of Manchimanitu, and there stuck out your sign, Sample Rooms. You then dwelt out to the sons of the forest a most damnable drug, fitly termed on earth by Christian women a beverage of hell, which destroyed both body and spirit, taking therefore all their money and blankets, and scrupling not to take in pawn the Bibles given them by my servants. Therefore know ye, this much abused race shall enjoy the liberty of these happy hunting grounds, while I teach them my will, which you were in duty bound to do while on earth, but instead you blocked up the highway that led to heaven. The car of salvation might not pass over. Had you done your duty, they as well as you would now be rejoicing in glory with my saints with whom you, fluttering, tried this day in vain to rise. But now I say unto you, stand back. You shall not tread upon the heels of my people, nor tyrannize over them any more. Neither shall you, with gatling gun or otherwise, disturb or break up their prayer meetings and camp any more. Neither shall you practice with weapons of lightning and thunder any more. Neither shall you use tobacco in any shape, way, or manner. Neither shall you touch, taste, handle, make, buy, or sell anything that can intoxicate any more. And know ye, ye cannot buy out the law or skulk by justice here. And if any attempt is made on your part to break these commandments, I shall forthwith grant these red men of America great power and delegate them to cast you out of paradise and hurt you headlong through, hurl you headlong through its outer gates into the endless abyss beneath, far beyond where darkness meets with light, there to dwell and thus shut you out from my presence and the presence of angels in the light of heaven forever and ever. The End